0: And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore,
1: And this is Lois Richter in a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis day. And not too hot. It's not over 100 today.
0: We just had a little mini heat wave here in the Sacramento Valley. And uh, we're seeing the usual scorched leaves that follow on a three to five day basis after any temperatures over 100 degrees at our garden center. I always warn the staff when it hits 100 for a couple days in a row, and they know this by now, you'll be seeing the same problems same things coming in why are these leaves burned all that kind of stuff well we're back out of that now and it's 88 degrees as lois and i are recording this broadcast we're recording it august 24th 2022 for broadcast on august 25th 2022 and as i say it's 88 degrees and in Davis, it's going to go up to a high today of 96, dropping down to 57 degrees tonight. And a cooling trend. Look at these temperatures for the rest of this week, folks. We always talk about the August cool down when you get that nice period of pollination weather for those healthy tomato vines that you've been deep watering and they're blooming like crazy. All right. Well, the day of the broadcast, the high is going to be 93 degrees. Thursday night will be 57. Friday will be 93 degrees. Friday night will be 58. Saturday, in Davis will be 85 degrees. I'll just let that sink in for a moment. Oh. August, 85 degrees. Saturday night will be 56 degrees. Sunday will be 84 degrees. Oh. Sunday night will be 56. Monday warming up again, 91. Monday night, 57. And a little bit of a heating, heating trend. Tuesday will be 94 degrees. So we're going to have several days where we're barely going to get even into the low 90s and one, two, two of them at least where it'll be in the mid 80s with night temperatures in the mid 50s. I was having an interesting conversation with a gardener who lives up in Willows. Willows is up Highway 5, if you've ever been uh, driving up 5 past Dunnigan and on your way to Arbuckle and all that part of the Sacramento Valley. And uh, she's a gardener up there and she was saying the tomato vines were growing great, but she hadn't been getting very good fruit set yet. And I said, that's interesting. We had in July, we had you know great pollination weather i have never had this many tomatoes on my plants in august as i have this year and a lot of my customers who have been deep watering and have vigorously growing vines are reporting pretty much the same thing well uh daniel swain my favorite meteorologist uc davis graduate and uh, he posts on twitter quite regularly under the weather west name and he does the weather west blog gives us a california weather update and comments that despite a lack of really hot temperatures along the immediate coast Nearly the entire state has been warmer than average, and inland areas have been roasting for the past month. Well, Willows is most definitely inland. Uh, We had this pattern where being within the coastal influence, we were cooler by, let's say, three to four degrees in Dixon versus Davis. And Davis was three to four degrees cooler than Sacramento, where one of my employees lives. And this is definitely the pattern interior areas were warm in in July actually hot in July didn't have great tomato pollination weather, but those of us affected by the coastal breeze had much cooler temperatures now he wants you to know uh, pattern is going to continue for the next week with hotter than usual late August temperatures inland near average or slightly below average August temperatures along the coast. The southwest monsoon will also calm down dramatically during this period. Some of you all had some rain last week. But then models are hinting of the potential for a modest north wind event, Mm. along with modest cool down in parts of California during the last couple of days in August. Too early to talk details, but could pose a fire weather concern. North wind is dry, gusty. Can spark If a fire gets sparked, it can really spread quickly. However, the highest confidence part of the medium term outlook actually comes at the end. In early to mid-September, strong ensemble model agreement regarding guarding the potential for a major and widespread early September heat event affecting all of California in that okay. time frame. And he ends with his trademark, stay tuned. <laughs> so oh, stay cool, tuned. nice, cool, nice, north wind hot. That's pretty much our model for the next, let's say two weeks. But we are getting a very nice August cool down right now. And if your tomato plants are healthy and vigorous and have flowers on them, you should get really good fruit set for the tomatoes you'll be harvesting here in mid-October. KDRT is community radio. That means we're public radio. We rely on folks like you to fund our operating costs. If you like what you hear, if you like this program or all the great programming at KDRT, or just the whole idea of community radio, head on over to kdrt.org and click on the support button you'll find all kinds of great programming there let's uh, let's mention one of our favorite music shows there at kdrt jug out band. of style that's a
1: jug band. jug band you
0: know sorry i clicked on the wrong one i clicked on out of style now wayne hagan who is a founding got to back up here he's a founding member of the california jug band association member of the board of directors and he has a great jug band show He also has a show called Out of Style. So Wayne does two shows. All right. So we'll talk about this one first. Out of Style, he steps out of that jug band mode, plays all kinds of interesting eclectic music. That's on Wednesdays, 6 to 7 p.m. Replays a couple of times during the week. Now let's look at his actual lifelong passion here i look it up. Uh, Sounds So Sweet. That's the one I was trying to go to. It takes a lively look at the sweet sounds of jug band music past and present. That is live Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m., and it replays on Sundays. So Wayne Hagen gives us two programs during the week, uh, jug band and one where it's just eclectic folk and whatever, whatever comes into his realm of consciousness. Those are both on KDRT. So to check the program, you know, when they air and when they rerun, just go to KDRT.org and click on the scheduled guide.
1: And then I want to talk about Don Shore Ooh. and Lois Richter talking about birds, but not on this show. We—I uh, have a new show called uh, Birding with Lois. It's a video program. It's think of it as television, but you get to see it online. And last Thursday, Don came on, and he was on the show, and we had such a good time. Well, at least I had a good time. Do you yeah. have?
0: yeah it was great we had lots of pictures of flowering plants and things that draw birds and talking about ways to draw birds and i interjected my usual it's not just birds we want in our garden we and talk beneficial. About beneficial insects that we want to bring in as well yeah
1: well, how do anyway, they, how if, do if they if find I, this show if anybody wants to see it uh, the website Global has everything there and so Birding with Lois. And my name is L-O-I-S. There's no U's in it or anything. Uh, Dot global, because we're trying to become a worldwide thing eventually. Right now, we're just in the U.S., but we do have uh, crew all over, including in Canada and all sorts of
0: places. if If you go to YouTube, you can just type in birding with Lois. And you'll find it. Well, right?
1: Yeah. But then all you see is a few YouTube things. If you go to the website <laughs> then you'll see it all in one place. Because I've done more than just the shows. I've done a few yeah. other things and they're all there. Yeah, anyway, uh Yeah. It's always
0: a, always a popular topic, bringing birds into the garden. You know, we always I think we started with hummingbirds. Actually, we started with white ground sparrows. <laughs> just for fun. I made sure there was a picture of white crown sparrows up there for the beginning, but then we started with hummingbirds because that seems to be the bird that just fascinates everybody. Uh, but then there's all these other birds that are out there eating bugs and, you know, enjoying your garden and making it a healthy ecosystem. So we like to start with the glamorous ones, you know, the famous one. It's kind of like the world of butterflies and insects. You've got to start with swallowtails and monarchs because everybody knows them. And then you can move on to the less glamorous butterflies that come into your garden and the beneficial insects most people can't even see. You got to hook them in with the one that everybody knows. I think we started with hummingbirds.
1: Well, you know, the reason that hummingbirds are so popular with people is A, they're beautiful, but B, they don't care about hiding. They're just out there. (laughs) And so if you have flowers in your yard and this is a hummingbird area, you're gonna see hummingbirds in your yard. And so it's it's an easy way to get into birding because they're easy to see and they're easy to attract. If you've got hummingbirds in the area, just putting up a feeder. Oh by the way, I'm no no just plant
0: sunflowers. Just plant sunflowers. (laughs) That that was the whole
1: (laughs) yeah. Anyway. Birding with Lois.global. global. Yeah. All, All right. right. We're, let's, we're, let's go on to something. I think uh, I think I'm just going to pull things out of the mailbag and yeah. um, surprise you with them so this is from Kathy it says hi Don and Lois thank you for your excellent low water plant suggestions for the walkway I wanted to pass along a resource that I have used in the past the Wukol's search engine and she puts a url in there Um, I'm only going to read the first part ucanr.edu and when you get there look for the search engine WooCalls keeps making their website better. You can search by city, type of plant, water use. There are now lots of plant pictures, too. Lots of garden designers I know use WooCalls, but home gardeners seem to be unfamiliar with it. Hope you can spread the word in time for fall planting season.
0: Yes, WooCalls, just so you know, is W-U-C-O-L-S. What does that mean? Water Use Coefficients of Landscaped Species rules and it's a phenomenal project that's been going on for well well over a decade where uh plants are being identified for six bioregions of the state essentially uh, as to how drought tolerant they are—low, medium, high—in terms of water use uh, compared to a turf, we use these coefficients. You know, if a turf is is 100%, and a Japanese maple is considered, say, 90% of the water use of turf, it's not. You can get by with less than that, but that's a good example. Uh, compare that at the talk when I give talks on this. I'll show a slide of a, a red Japanese maple and then show a slide of a red cotinus, which is smoke tree. Similar size, similar shape, both with red leaves, used kind of similarly, although one prefers shape and one prefers full sun. The wukol's coefficient for Japanese maples is 70 to 90%. The wukol's coefficient for smoke tree is 30%. -hmm that tells you that it can get by with 30% of the water of turf and a Japanese maple needs much more. And this is really, really important for designers. And I do know landscape designers, landscape architects, just cross-check the Wukol's data all the time. If you're putting in a landscape and your customer wants garden hydrangeas, you know, the regular old fashioned hydrangeas, then they better be, since they need almost as much water as a lawn does, they better be on their own zone or a zone with other like-minded plants. And uh, that's how you zone plants in the landscape for best water efficiency. And as you're choosing plants and you're, you're putting everything together, if you have one thing out there that needs a lot more water than all the others, you're gonna have to accommodate that somehow. If you had checked against this search function, you would know that that should be in its own area on its own valve or all plants of that type should be in their own hydro zones as we call them. So it's an incredibly useful search function. And yes, I've looked at it several times recently, it gets better and better because they started with a big panel of experts an ongoing panel of experts to review hundreds, if not thousands of species and cultivars of plants and come to their, their consensus is really how it's done on where these plants fit, individual plants fit with respect to their water use. Obviously our water use is higher here on the interior than it is on the coastal zones. And you can look up and find um, where it fits. And if you're going, to, one of the reasons I like this is that we are telling you that in a water emergency, you can adopt the slide rule. We've talked about the slide rule. You can water everything in your landscape except a couple things at 50% of the measured evapotranspiration rate in your area, 50% ET. That's a lot less water than most people are giving things. It's a lot less water than some things would prefer. But what we're saying in a drought emergency, if you go to that, you'll get acceptable results. Your crepe myrtle blooms won't be as abundant, but they'll still bloom. Now, that's an example. Um, What we know is that if it's a plant on the wu plant search function that says it's a 70 percent coefficient and i'm telling you it's okay to go to 50 percent, that's one of the ones that's likely to burn yeah that's one of the ones that's likely to be stressed so either adjust accordingly or just tolerate the fact that your japanese maple may look a little more scorched this year because you're watering it less because there's a drought emergency so that's the the basis of combining these two things the slide rule urgent situation, statewide emergency, go to 50% of measured ET, we've talked about this many times, check the plants in your landscape against this search function and you'll go, oh, maybe I better go ahead and give that one plant some extra water, you know, that's the one plant that's more likely to be stressed in this situation, it gives you a little more guidance as to which plants in your landscape you also might consider replacing in the long run or or giving just hand watering if you have to. Don't have your whole system running because you have three hydrangeas. Have your whole system running for all the other plants and then get a little extra water, the hydrangeas, if you need to do that.
1: One of my questions when we're talking about this is always, okay, so if I had the hydrangeas, which I don't, but if I did, and I need to water them a little more, can't I just throw a couple of extra uh, drips on that particular plant? Or is it the timing of the watering that's the problem?
0: Both methods will work. I know of landscapers, I had this conversation with one who was putting a Japanese maple into an otherwise somewhat lower water landscape. So he was just going to double up the drip under that tree. All right. Well, yeah, that works. You give it more water. And as long as you've got your setting right for the whole landscape, let's say he's running it once a week and it's getting twice as much water per square foot as everything else. That'll probably work. I realize that we can talk about theory and we can talk about uh, all these coefficients and all this stuff you can look up, But then there's the practice, you know, and I've been taken to just casually asking landscape contractors that I know, particularly the ones that I don't get good results. How do you guys figure out exactly how to set the timers? How do you figure out exactly how often and how long to run them? And the answer is, um, it's very commonly by the seat of their pants. But what they go by is that dictum that I always want to put out there. Your best guide is plant performance. We can do all the theory. We can measure. We can poke in the soil and see what the distribution of water was. We can look at these coefficients. But if one plant in your landscape is always looking stressed Well, probably needs some more water. And so you may need it more frequently, may need it more deeply. And the actual answer to your question, Lois, would be that depends on the soil. Because if your soil can hold water for a week, then you can give a week's worth of water all at once, as I really wish everybody would do in the Davis area. Solid one week watering for all the woody plants in your landscape would be fine. And that would be great. You'd be conserving water because you wouldn't be watering constantly. You'd be able to give the plants a deeper watering. The soil can store moisture in our area. But there are some people listening who have raised planters. Well, that's faster draining and sandy. There are some people listening in unique parts of Davis where there's very sandy soil, South Davis, where there's sandy loam soil in many parts of South Davis. They can't go a full week between waterings for at least smaller plants, although they might be able to for bigger plants. So the again, the answer to your question depends on how well your soil Will stores water one thing that can even it all out is mulch just putting mulch on the soil as we get into the hot weather can help retain moisture once it gets into the soil anyway great link and that again that's ucanr.edu which is in, in, years ago for many years on the davis garden show we would talk about the IPM.ucdavis davis site it's all migrated to this one u-c-a-n-r e d u and then just do a search for wucols w u c o l s you'll find this great plant search function there thank you kathy
1: so don what do those initial mean u c a n r
0: university of california agriculture and natural resources
1: Thank you, sir. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So um, I want to pop over to the calendar, this being August 24th. We don't have much time left to go through the calendar. We only have one more week. So I'm just going to read off really quickly the pictures that he has on here. If you want to see them, go to theredwoodbarn.com, look for the calendar. And it has every month has flowers on it. And this month. It has a butylon. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, could, know, have every,
0: I could have that. I could have that every it. month of the year if I wanted to. Yep.
1: Yeah. Uh, verbena, Dahlia, Fuchsia. Now, this is the true Fuchsia. This is yeah. not the um, yeah. things called Fuchsias. There's a lot of things called Fuchsia. Uh, flux, P H L O X, Amaryllis belladonna. Well, no, those are done. Those are our. my my
0: last one my last ones are still blooming but yeah they they started in mid late july actually yeah
1: sunflower because we always talk about sunflower and coreopsis salvia there's lots of salvias and most of them bloom in spring summer some bloom all the way into the fall
0: well the ones Um, that are actually let's stop there for a moment the ones that are really coming into their peak now but the Salvia guaranitica, the uh, uh, the black and bloom, and the this new one called uh, Amistad, the friendship sage, which is an amazing one. But the ones that are just about to really take off are the autumn sage, Salvia greggii, Salvia microphylla, and their hybrids.
1: And then we have Gerbera, G-E-R-B-E-R-A. How do you pronounce that? I, I
0: say Gerbera. It's a daisy. It's the very popular daisy that everybody kills.
1: Yeah, brown eyed susan, black eyed susan, uh There's got to be a better name than hemerocallis. Yeah, daylilies. Oh daylilies. day-lilies yeah. Why don't you just say daylilies?
0: <laughs> I have botanical names on here.
1: <laughs> mechanical, yeah, okay. Um hibiscus mus- musciotus.
0: Muscutus. Just say muscutus. Mos-
1: yeah. Moscutis, okay. And brugmansia And then the one that I skipped over on the 16th, I'm coming back to. It's called Aptinia. And I don't know how many people actually know that plant, but it is like, it is so cool. It's a a very low-growing, ground-hugging... Ground-cover. Yeah, succulent. Succulent, that's my word I'm going. And it looks, you know, it looks lush and squishy and stuff, but it's not... It doesn't take a lot of water, no, it's and quite the, when drought, it, it blooms, it just is totally covered. Now, the one I'm used to is that red apples, yep. though I think it comes in a few other shades now. Red apples. There's a white.
0: Can- there's a white version as well. Yeah, it's a vigorous it's- ground cover. The thing people need to know: it spreads fast and far. It's a very vigorous ground cover, and bees absolutely love it. Expect a little winter damage. I've had years where it completely melted down when we get down into the mid-20s or where we get a normal frost, you get a little tinge on the foliage. Comes right back. It even came back from the hard freeze in nineteen ninety. But uh, it uh, it fell out of favor. It was really popular when it came on the market and people would plant it and Then then fell out of favor largely because of how vigorous it is. I want people to know this is not something to put in around your cactus or, or something like that. It'll run right over them. And that's no fun pulling it out of a situation like that. But it's great the, for covering a big area.
1: The place that I've enjoyed it the most is there are a few banks along uh, Covell Boulevard yeah. that have... Uh, they're like the berms where the bicycle path isn't going to run into the road kind of thing. And it's a big, long mound, maybe, I don't know, 10, 20 feet long. The entire thing is covered with this. And in the spring when it blooms, Oh my word. Can't even see the leaves. There's so many blooms. Anyway,
0: back up, back up to that one hibiscus mosquitoes. These are the Southern bell, Southern bell, or, or uh, there's a couple other names for them. These are the hardy hibiscus and I'm really happy to see Big big plant breeder companies taking this plant on finally and coming out with a bunch of new varieties. And some of them are shorter. Some of them have even bigger flowers, if you can imagine. Some of them have veins where the, color, the vein is a different color than the rest of the petal. Now, this is, if you want a hibiscus and you don't want to have to do anything for it, you don't want to have to worry about it cold protection or fussing with it or aphids or anything, this is the hibiscus for you. I mean, aside from Rose of Sharon, which is a hibiscus, that's more like a tree. This is a a deciduous perennial with dinner plate size blossoms. And they originally for years and years, all we had was the dark pink, the lighter pink and the white and then the white with a pink throat. Those were it for years and years and years. They got four to five feet tall, and they bloomed like crazy July and August. And then they would continue leafy, You know, the leaves would continue through the season, and then they would turn yellow in the fall. The plant dies completely to the ground. You cut it back to the ground in the wintertime. So you have a big bear patch out there then. That's something to be aware of. But you can grow these way colder than here. I mean, they grow these in the Midwest. They grow them in, in, I don't know how far down into the USDA zones it goes, but way colder than what we have here. And it gives you these great blooms and the plants just get bigger and bigger as the years go by. And so you'll walk out there. I have one around the corner on my property that I've almost forgotten about around that corner. And there'll be 20 of these giant hibiscus blooms all of a sudden out there coming just out of nowhere. So if you like that big tropical look but you don't want to try and cover up a hibiscus rosa sinensis or do all the fussing that you have to do with one that's on the margins here in terms of hardiness, great group for you. The The name is fairly unpronounceable, hibiscus Mosquitos, M-O-S-C-H-E-U-T-O-S.
1: And does it like sun or shade?
0: Sun is best.
1: Hmm. Oh, well.
0: <laughs> oh, well.
1: <laughs> oh, well. Okay. okay. That's enough for the, the calendar. And I do want to let you folks know that if you were to go and... Go to Don's website. He's a little search box at the top. And if you put in August, you would come up with a bunch of things, that calendar being one of them. But also, there is a beautiful table of things blooming in August. And they have annuals, perennials, shrubs, trees, vines, and then all the botanical names in there. So I I recommend to you, check out the website. Great. All right, next we have coming up drought tolerance in citrus. Yeah, we've
0: talked, we have talked other times about drought tolerance in fruit trees in general, and it's a complicated subject. And actually, backing up earlier in this program and other times, we've talked about the Wookholes data. Mm -hmm. This is one area where it's a little confusing because if you go in there and you look up the landscape coefficients for fruit trees, they're all listed as moderate almost everywhere. I mean, just every one of the places they're grown, they list them as moderate. Well, I kind of agree with that. I kept looking at it and going, I think the pomologists just gave up and went home early (laughs) from these meetings. Pomology is the the study of fruit trees. And um, I have delved deeply into different types of fruit trees because now for the third time I'm making a decision about acreage on my property and what to replace one group of trees with another group of trees. And I want to make sure that I'm putting in a 30 to 50 year orchard. I want to put in something that's going to be able to go through the ups and downs of rainfall, flooding, and drought that we're likely to encounter here.
1: Well, when you talk about the landscape coefficient of a tree, doesn't doesn't the plum tree have two? It's got when it's making fruit and when it's not?
0: Not in this, not with the Wucolz process, no. It's just being listed as a landscape plant. And so I think this may be part of the the issue because there's loads of data about what happens to fruit trees from the agricultural standpoint, which is what I'm looking at, when you withhold watering. Now, just for the record, I'm in an area, I know California is in a huge drought, but I'm in an area, a groundwater sub-basin that is considered very stable and not threatened at all. I'm in the Solano Irrigation District sub-basin of our Solano County groundwater district. And thanks to Lake Berryessa and the outflow from that, our water tables are nice and stable. But there are places where people are listening, where you may not know whether your wells are going to be there forever. You may be listening, you may be growing on surface water from somewhere, and those supplies may be cut back, you might be facing 30% reductions in irrigation on a fairly frequent basis, that wouldn't be surprising. Or you may be doing a landscape where you are doing a very low water landscape, but you want some fruit trees as well. And as I've said many times, for home gardeners, fruit trees can be low water. But for farmers, the timing of the intentionally reduced irrigation is really crucial. And uh, the question came up with a conversation from uh, uh, one of the master gardeners who's writing an article for them. And he had found on my website that I do make the comment that citrus are particularly or can be particularly drought tolerant. And he was curious about that because whenever he goes to websites like the Wukol's data, for example, they're listed as moderate water use, not particularly drought tolerant. And when you go to agricultural publications, the kinds of books we had before the internet came out, they would talk about needing to water them at practically 90% of, you know, the rate the turf would have. There is lots and lots and lots of research on fruit trees and particularly on citrus. And the question that a home gardener has to ask is, if I'm reducing irrigation on my citrus, is it going to affect my yield? And more important, corollary, do I really care about that all that much as a home gardener? If I only get 100 navel oranges on my orange tree one year and I normally get 300, Will 100 be adequate? Can I live with that in a drought circumstance where everyone's facing an emergency? Here's the other key question. Is there any impact on quality? In other words, you know, if you're, are you getting less fruit and is it worse or are you just getting less fruit? So from an agricultural standpoint, as someone who's about to plant several acres of citrus, I want to know, is there a timing of irrigation, reduced irrigation that affects the yield? Does it affect the yield and the quality and so forth? Just in case we run into that, because no matter where you are, whatever well you're on in an agricultural region, they are increasingly regulating groundwater usage. And there's going to be probably 30 years from now, who knows, constraints on how much water you can pump out of the ground. There is a process that we call regulated deficit irrigation. Regulated deficit irrigation. If you wanna do your own Google searching on this, just type in the crop, citrus, almonds, then type in the words, regulated deficit irrigation, RDI, and you will find information. For example, with almonds, if you cut way back on the watering of almonds right after harvest, you'll badly affect next year's crop because flower bud differentiation in almonds occurs in August to September, September predominantly. If the plant is drought stressed when flower bud initiation is occurring, you're not seeing this, but that's when it's happening. So almond growers irrigate immediately after harvest very thoroughly. They do that because they're otherwise they will significantly reduce yield. By comparison, walnuts, it is learned many, many years ago. If they're drought stressed during the winter, which doesn't happen very often, but in a year when we only had six and a half inches of rain, it did then they will have reduced yield the next year. This has been shown by research. So they know that if it's a dry January, you'll, you'll be a little surprised to see the irrigation districts ramping up and the walnut growers irrigating to replace the rainfall they would normally be getting. Because again, they would have significantly reduced yield. So from a farming standpoint, that makes a big difference. If you got a walnut in your backyard, I can tell you they can go without water practically <laughs> year round if it comes to that. I mean, they're very drought tolerant trees, but obviously you would have fewer walnuts so with citrus we've got a lot of research and i'll boil it down to two things two times the period of flowering and fruit set and expansion which in our area, they flower March or April, they're setting fruit then, they have way more flowers than they can possibly hold fruit. A whole lot of tiny fruit sets and anyone who's grown a lemon, especially a Meyer lemon or any kind of citrus in their backyard has then watched a whole lot of those tiny fruit fall off. That's normal. They they can't, they have thousands of fruit and they set thousands of flowers, they set hundreds of fruit. So a significant percentage will drop off. And then we have what we call June drop, which actually occurs in May here, where the ones that are beginning to expand, a whole lot of them will drop off. If there is drought during that period, June drop will be higher, so you'll have less fruit overall. Therefore, you should avoid drought stress on your citrus spring and early summer. You should water them normally when the tree is flowering, if they need it, if you haven't had sufficient rainfall, you know, you might start up your irrigation season and you'll start irrigating and you'll go through April and May and the fruit and the bunch of it's gonna fall off. That always happens, I get calls about it every year. And then whatever isn't gonna fall off is on there and starts expanding. And you should probably continue that irrigation, let's say through June. Once it's mostly expanded, July into August, you can cut back. And I have seen studies in Fresno. The thing to remember is that citrus is grown everywhere around the world that it can be grown. It's the one of the most popular fruit crops in the world, different types but different but all around the world, Spain, you know places where we have similar climates to here. And when they would do studies on the fruit expansions phase and reduce the irrigation, the fruit would stop expanding. Oh, bad problem. Your fruit isn't expanding, it'll be smaller. And if they would then catch up with irrigation, voila, the fruit would expand faster and catch up. That's good news. So it means that you can, you can adjust for a deficit. But in places like Spain, where they would cut back in the next phase August, September, October, and also in Fresno, where most of the naval oranges in California come from, just for the record, very hot climate, lots of irrigation. They only get 10 inches of rain in Fresno. They provide most of what those trees get. Some of those orchards have been there over a hundred years. It's been a long history of orange production in the Central Valley. So pretty similar to here, except hotter and drier. They found that if they cut back the watering to less than 50%, uh, they would still get adequate yield they get adequate yield and quality. What would happen, in fact, on some of the fruit that they tested was the acidity would be higher, and the total soluble solids, which is the sugar would be higher. In other words, they'd be more flavorful. So if they would reduce the irrigation, once the fruit was almost full size and the the plants put on some growth for the season, so it's healthy, you're not stressing the trees, you're not straining them. You get to August, you can cut back. In one study, they only did five inches of water total from August through October, when they normally would do 12 inches of water during that period. And everything was fine. It didn't even affect yield. It didn't affect, and the quality was improved. So, one of the reasons they did this was they found that if they did withhold water from commercial for a commercial purpose, some of the fruit would color up earlier. So, they could rush it to market earlier. They could actually make more money on it. You, the bottom line from all this is that farmers have tested this. You can water your citrus at 50%. Hey, there's the slide rule again 50% of the measured ET after the fruit has set and has gone through the early stage of development. Once you get to midsummer, you can cut your irrigation back on your citrus to 50% of measured ET and your yield will be fine as a home gardener, especially, and the quality might even be better. That study was done on mandarins. I don't know if it absolutely translates to navel oranges in terms of quality, but the yield is not significantly diminished. You're not cutting it to nothing. I'm not saying go to August and stop watering. That would definitely not be good, but you can cut to as little as 50% of the measured ET. So you can apply the slide rule, that emergency thing we're talking about, to your citrus. Question was, can you do it to your other fruit trees? Can you do it to your deciduous fruit trees? Well, if you summer prune them, you can. So if you've summer pruned them, let's say your peaches are done, you've picked your O'Henrys, you got out there on your stepladder, you cut down three to four feet of growth off the tree all around, you've taken off roughly 20, 25% of the, the foliage that way. Well, you're reducing the water use by that tree. And we know that at that point, you can irrigate at about 50%. You know The slide rule, once again, about 50% of measured ET and the tree will be fine. Your almonds, if you happen to be growing almonds in your backyard, it'll reduce your yield. Do you care about that as an almond grower who's casually growing them in your backyard? Probably not. I don't think you care if your tree only gives you half as many almonds as it used to. We do know that almonds can tolerate drought, but that's a yield issue for farmers in terms of reducing it on those. I would go ahead and step out on a limb here and say that in the late summer, you can cut your water use for deciduous trees and citrus by as much as 50%, and you'll still get adequate yields and you'll still get adequate, if not better quality in the case of some of these types of fruit. So don't worry too much about it, but I'm not saying stop irrigating. When they did this, and I found a great YouTube video and a lot of reports on it, they gave a very thorough soaking when they did. They just went longer between irrigations so that instead of irrigating two inches of water every two weeks they did two inches of water every four weeks a deeper wider water deep wide watering and then they could go a longer interval allowing some intentional stress on the trees that was okay it's regulated deficit irrigation unregulated deficit irrigation not a good plan randomly not watering your trees not a good plan stopping watering your fruit trees definitely not a good plan but cutting it by half And doing it deeper and less often will work for fruit trees, for home gardeners especially, because yield reduction is not a huge concern for most home gardeners.
1: Well, Don, it's August. Yes. Uh, Let's talk about Hot August Landscapes, which happens to be the title of his recent article and the Davis Enterprise.
0: Yes, and the uh, enterprise is uh, having a do it yourself section. I've been writing articles for it. It shows up in there somewhere on the online version. Some people have mentioned they haven't been able to find it yet, but they gave it great placement on the print edition. So people kept walking in with it. I did a thing that I've taken to doing every year, which is I drive around some of the random neighborhoods of Davis and I look at the landscapes. It's a little bleak, (laughs) okay? (laughs) And it's a little gray and brown out there. As I say in the article, lots of completely dead lawns, lots of yard conversions to low water landscapes, and uh, that's preferable, obviously, but I'm having two problems with this. And the first is that the, and this is what I really want to emphasize now, you'll be able to find the article at some point. The first is what I call the collateral damage, where people are not watering their lawns to the woody shrubs and the trees and the landscapes. I mean, they look terrible. In many cases, some some of the street trees are very stressed. Some of the ornamental trees are very stressed. Your trees need water. And in many instances, they've been gaining much of that water, not just from your watering, but your neighbor's watering. And so I'll come to a street where all of you are being really good. You've all stopped watering your lawns. You're letting them die completely. And you're killing your trees. And this is obviously not desirable because a tree is a Big investment of resources and time. We're talking about 10, 20, 30 year old trees that will go on for 30, 40, 50 more years, providing all the benefits of trees, which I shouldn't really have to enumerate here. So please, please, if you change over your landscape, remember to provide for the water needs of the trees. Somehow it can be as simple as methods we've talked about here with rings of drip irrigation can be once a month setting a sprinkler out there and letting it run for a couple of hours, whatever. Uh, And it's all fine. But I just want something that that will reduce the loss of our trees in our urban landscape. Uh, The second is that a lot of these landscapes are, I mean, I grew up in Southern California. I had a cactus garden in my front yard. Growing up, my mother was way ahead of her time. We spent a lot of our camping trips out in the Anza Borrego Desert and the Mojave Desert. I love deserts and all that kind of thing. But a lot of these landscapes going in are pretty austere is the term that I used. Uh, there's a, an apartment complex in South Davis where they took out the useless turf along the street. Great. Put in a bunch of low water plants. Wonderful. Then surrounded them with white rock. Not great white rock is not a great thing to do. We don't we don't need that here. And it, it increases the temperature above it, it reflects sunlight, it makes it hot and it makes it un, unpleasantly dry. Um, I don't want to criticize any landscapers, but I'm seeing more and more of this. And I'm not sure why rock is suddenly becoming popular. But this in the valley, when we're 100 degrees, if you're standing near white rock or even lighter colored rock of any kind, reflecting above it, it's not a very comfortable environment. So I just wanted to emphasize in the article that it's the leafy shrubs and trees and the irrigated parts of the landscape that make our, where we live habitable. You know, if you've lived in a desert, you know that outside is pretty unpleasant in hot weather, but here outside can be very pleasant in hot weather. Go to Central Park Farmer's Market on a Wednesday evening when we're at the highest temperature of the day, but there's a great big lawn there and great big sycamore trees and everybody's comfortable because of the evapotranspiration, the evaporative cooling being provided by the plants there. You don't have to have a lawn, you don't have to have the high water plants, but these leafier plants then the irrigated landscapes make our environment more habitable and we don't have to go to this kind of completely austere, very low water, xeric landscaping that's becoming very popular. Do that in places where it's appropriate you know, down along your driveway or something where you're not going to be standing out there ever, then go ahead and put in some of these cool best areas and mangavis and things like that and have that kind of interesting, dramatic landscape. But there's so many of these very low-water plants from parts of California, from Australia, from the American Southwest, from the Mediterranean, from South Africa, that bloom, that give lots of benefits to birds and to butterflies and to beneficial insects that you can use that can live on anywhere from 50 to 70% less water than a traditional landscape. So you just have to choose your plants carefully. And that was really what the main thrust of the article was about, was the types of plants you can choose and the whole range of what's available to us, including California natives, of course, but also including plants from many other parts of the world. So the main point of the the article that was the fun part with all the pictures was some plants that I think would be good good choices if you're looking for very low water plants to give some of the criteria that actually Lois and I talked about on the TV show, blooms over a long season, flowers that provide benefits for bees, butterflies and hummingbirds and so forth, mix of foliage textures and then drought tolerance once established. And I just decided to include things from all over the world. So Toyon, our California native, Bottle brush, which is from Australia. Xylosma, which is a great shrub, an Asian shrub, but very low, low water. attracts bees and looks very shiny and lush, even though it can live actually without even being irrigated in the summer here. Uh, Texas ranger name tells you where it comes from these just waves of bloom on that one impresses me more and more as time goes by And it's a very low water plant Uh, rosemary you know it's everybody's sort of pedestrian plant it's it's everywhere here in California blooms in the wintertime and bees are all over it when it's blooming in the wintertime and so are various little little birds of different types. Um, the germanders the salvias which is of course a huge group of plants with lots of choices many of them from the american southwest being some of our best plants for landscapes here in california and the california natives have their place too but tend to be much bigger plants so give them more space so you won't have to be pruning them All the time and then i also wanted to mention things like mahonia where we have a native one and there's non-native types and they give these beautiful blooms in the winter time two california natives we mentioned a lot on the show ceanothus that's the the mountain lilac or california lilac Easy to kill here in the valley with our dense soils and, and the inter, you know, intermittent flooding that we get and people tending to overwater them. But there is one in particular. Yankee Point has just proven to be really, really adaptable. So you know, and then we always like to mention on the program. So I went ahead and put it in this one. Ribes viburnifolium. Despite the fact that it's from the Catalina Islands, it does great in the valley and likes shade. And So it's a great, great shade ground cover shrub for for attracting hummingbirds. And there's a bunch of others, Nepetus and Roselia. Anybody seen the firecracker bush? It's a cool plant. The Arboretum, I think, actually really introduced it locally. And it's just this wiry looking thing that suddenly puts out hundreds of tubular red flowers. So, you know, when you see tubular red flowers, you know what's going to be coming to visit that. And then Gazanias zaushnaria epilobium is the new name and uh, myoporum is a ground cover that i wanted to mention because of his extraordinary drought tolerance there's another drought tolerant ground cover catching on in the bay area and here in the valley to some extent daimondia south africa daisy with silvery foliage that's being used as kind of a lawn substitute not for walking on like a lawn but a very flat mat dense of silver foliage and as long as you gradually reduce the irrigation as it gets established you'll do fine it is one where my my customers who planted it when it first came on the market it grew great the first year and started to die out the second year like creeping time and a lot of other ground covers and we thought uh oh here we go another one of these but if they started watering half as often and twice as long, and then even less and even less, and eventually to almost no irrigation. It's a very tough ground cover that makes a very attractive gray, silvery gray mat. And then all the grasses, I mean, there's hundreds of grasses that came on the market back in the 1990s. All the growers were coming up with different ornamental grasses, but there's one, it's a California native, actually would be native here in the Sacramento Valley, right around the Davis area, I believe deer grass, Muhlenbergia ridgens. And you're seeing this one used more and more. It's becoming a go-to grass for a lot of landscape designers. Big, dramatic, evergreen, that's key. Most of the ornamental grasses are deciduous. Flower spikes are kind of interesting, but really what you have is a plant that has an attractive look year round And it's okay with watering, but it's also okay with not being irrigated. And uh, the only complaint I have about deer grass isn't the plant itself, it's the way people use it. Don't smash these together. Don't put them in three feet apart. Put them in six feet apart. Give each plant four to five feet of room and it'll really shine. It'll really be a dramatic looking plant that can be low irrigation. And uh, that way, if you, if the plant will have its full capacity to expand out and be a, an attractive thing in the landscape. I just see them put too close together, gets too busy and people get in. The worst thing that happens then the gardening service cuts them back. Uh, don't plant grasses that people are going to have to prune because none of the gardening services know how to prune ornamental grasses. They're a little tricky to keep attractive in the landscape, but deer grass is one of the best for this area.
1: okay. Here's another question, um, and this one there's there's lots of parts to it. So yep. we're gonna we're gonna start and just do the. Last question first. We'll probably not get time on this show, but we'll come back to this. Mahir um, writes, My last question, if you got this far, yes, we did. Yep. is around painting avocados and other stone fruit for sun protection doesn't the paint get into the plant and make the fruit bad for us to consume or am i overthinking it and do you have specific variety brand or concentration dilution of paint that you would recommend i have a young reed avocado about six feet tall that i bought about two weeks ago it's getting badly sunburned on one side and i need to do something about it as soon as possible I will put it in the ground in the next few weeks, but I'm worried it will be badly damaged before I do.
0: Yeah, this I, is can really- Can I try
1: it, this one, Don?
0: This is really important. Um, it, avocados are extremely vulnerable to sunburn on the on the trunk, on the bark, before it becomes bark. I mean, it's a green stem now, and uh, it takes a couple of years for it to protect itself. And if an avocado gets sunburned, eh, that's kind of the beginning of the end for that. They almost never come back out of it real well. Uh, interior- white latex paint. No, it does not get absorbed by the plant. So there's no concern about toxicity to the plant or to you. It just is a coating on the outside of the plant. Most people find they can take any interior white latex, thin it out 50-50 with water and just paint it on there. A lot of people just take an old sock or something and rub it on the surface if you don't happen to have a paintbrush handy. And you will see this done, of course, to commercial orchards all the time because sunburn is a big issue on fruit trees when you first plant them. Most commercial orchards for stone fruits and other types of trees in the valley are now using guards. The uh, the grower of the trees just sends them along with the 10,000 trees, and as they're being planted, they just slip those over them and staple them on, and that's that. And they're made out of cardboard or something. And it's white, and it reflects the sun. I use trunk wraps uh, these are things you can buy that are plastic they look like the inside of a, a paper towel roll okay uh, they, that kind of thing you can you, you wrap them around the trunk they're white they're plastic I leave them on there sometimes I've left them on for two or three years and until the trunk has actually expanded out to fill them I go uh oh and I pull that off warning many things will take up residence in that little area underneath those plastic trunk guards but they work really well I went from um, I know we're we're talking about your asking about avocados, but I'm going to move over to walnuts for a moment. Walnuts and pecans have a really high failure rate for people planting them. And part of it is sunburn sunburn on the on the graft union. And uh, I have found first that when I would paint, when I didn't do anything, I'd have a 20 or 30% loss rate. And I'm planting dozens, if not hundreds of trees. 20 or 30% loss rate gets pretty expensive. So when I paint, that goes down to maybe 10% or even less. When I would wrap with these things, it seemed to keep a little moisture in, keep the graft union from drying out, which was good in this instance, because I went down to as few as one or two trees out of a hundred or more planted. Once I put these plastic wraps on. Many places will sell these tree trunk uh, wraps or tree trunk protectors. You can go online and find them. A.M. Leonard Company sells them by by mail. Uh, A lot of other places you can find them. That's what I've gone to because it was a hassle to mix up the paint and go out there and paint all these things. And you can use anything like that. You could take the inside of a paper towel roll. Paint that white, wrap it around the trunk if you want to. The key is to reflect the sunlight. Or if you can't do that, shade that trunk somehow. That's really important. ASAP is absolutely the, the order of the day on this particular question. So yes, get it in the ground. Paint that with the interior white latex if that's convenient for you. If not, go ahead and put some kind of a protective barrier on it that you will remove, hopefully sooner than I have, <laughs> remove within let's say a year. And uh, uh, be aware that paper wasps sometimes like to move in there.
1: Okay, so this is one of the earlier questions. I wanted to get your advice on whether I should or can plant some stone fruit trees, plums, cherries, peaches, pluots, nectar, nectar plums,
0: nectar plums. Oh, those are cool. That's one of of my favorite and interspecific hybrids. The the nectar Z, nectar plum tastes just like you'd imagine, right? Between a nectarine and a plum. It's great.
1: Okay, but uh, if you... Should I plant some stone fruit trees that I currently have in large pots? And should I put them in the ground? I'm in Irvine in Southern California, by the way. I'm including pictures at the end of this email. I got most of the trees bare root and or already in pots. Some are early 2020 through 2022. They are now at our new house, as I had mentioned in a previous email, and can finally put them in the ground. So is this a good or bad time to do it?
0: Temperatures
1: where I am are about a high of 82 to 87 right now.
0: Most common answer you're going to get is wait till fall, but I plant all summer. And I plant in a place that is hotter than where you are in Irvine, usually. Um, And my experience, the reason I do that is that my experience is that uh, managing the irrigation of a plant in the ground is substantially easier than managing the irrigation of the plant in a container. So I get this question. I won't say daily, but it sure seems like it. They want to come in. They want to buy a crepe myrtle. Then they want to know, should I save this until fall to plant it? And I'm looking at them and thinking, but not saying. Somewhere in that time, you're going to forget to water it. Somewhere in that time, you're going to want to go away for a weekend. Somewhere in that time, you're going to be—you uh, know—something will come up and you'll forget, and the the soil ball, root ball, will dry out in the ground. The soil around it can retain moisture. You can mulch it. You can you can do things. You can even buy those bags that you fill with water and set on the plant that leak and trickle slowly to the plant. There's a bunch of ways you can deal with uh, the irrigation when it's in the ground in a container. I can tell you as a nursery professional, you will need to water every single day in our climate and in Irvine, probably close to every single day. So I put them in the ground because I find it a lot easier to manage that as long as you can give them the proper aftercare. I try not to plant here when it's over 100. I'll be more accurate, over about 95. I think that temperatures in the 80s are great. It's absolutely fine for planting. Be sure when you get the the root ball dug and perhaps another time we can go step by step through the, the process of how to plant a tree. But one key thing is I want to see a nice wide basin around that tree that you've created by pulling extra soil up to make a ridge in a circle, let's say a three foot diameter circle around the newly planted tree, so that you can set a hose there, turn the hose on a quarter to a half turn and fill up that basin with at least a couple, at least a couple to perhaps a few gallons of water at least that much water. That way you know it's gonna soak in, go all the way down to the bottom of the root ball and out past the root ball. And so you're making an area that you can fill. Now you've planted it correctly. So it's up above grade, right? Everybody remembers that rule. Everything should be up above grade a little bit. So water always percolates away from the crown in the long run. But for the early stage of this plant's development, you need to be able to water it thoroughly at the base. So I always do this by taking the extra soil. You've dug the hole, you've taken the plant out, you've inspected and corrected the roots. You know, the circling ones are being pulled out, stretched out or cut if you have to. Uh, The the ones are all matted on the bottom. You're cutting off or cutting through and you're planting it and someone else is holding it up. It's a two-person job planting a tree. It's always been my experience. It goes a lot better with a second person to stabilize the tree. You make sure it's up about an inch above grade so water will percolate away from the crown. And then... That extra soil that you took out that's been displaced by the root ball of the tree, you use to make that that ridge that creates the basin so that when you water, you can set a hose there, fill up that basin, you know you've given at least a couple gallons, if not several gallons of water. That should last you in most soils that I can think of for at least three or four days. You'll have to use your judgment on that. But I have gotten excellent results planting trees all season long this way and, and other plants all season long this way, as long as I then... Check daily, water is needed. Check daily, water is needed. You don't need to water daily, but you need to check daily just in case the plant is running out of moisture. So, if you do that, proper planting, easy to water correctly, proper aftercare, you should be fine planting during the summer. And the advantage of fall planting, at least in most of the country, is that weather is cooler and it starts to rain and uh, temperatures are more moderate all around. Well, you know what? We live in California. And when I hear this, I think, I remember one October, three years ago and we had five North wind episodes in October, five, and it was less than 10% humidity and 25 mile an hour winds. And that was fall, right? So that should be the ideal time to plant. No, we our weather is variable. In Southern California, your Santa Ana season now goes into December. When I was a kid, it was September, October. Now they say the Santa Ana winds continue into December down there. So fall is not perfect. Fall is great in many ways, but it's not perfect. There is no perfect time to plant. But as long as you can give the aftercare and you do it when the weather for whatever your region is, is relatively mild at the time of planting, you should be fine.
1: Do I dare ask you how tall the ridge is is it like two inches 20 inches
0: yeah yeah, you're just pulling soil up so the water doesn't run away when you fill the fill the basin basically so you're making a little a little barrier that's going to disappear over a couple years as we get rainfall and such in the long run it doesn't need to be there usually i do this so that i can water for the rest of the summer somewhere in that period the drip line gets to it because that's how i water things that tree on my property would get two two gallon an hour emitters one on either side of the either side of the tree inside the ridge, in other words, in the basin, so water stays where it's supposed to. And then I shift over to the drip system. And I can usually shift over on my soil to a drip system within three to four weeks of planting the tree. But at first I like to fill the basin by hand to make sure I'm getting all that nursery soil moist, all the soil around it moist and getting to at least a depth of the root ball.
1: And if you out there have a question that you would like to ask us, please email us at
0: show at gmail.com
1: someone came into don's store and he writes these he makes little notes as as he's overhearing conversations and the question is what the heck is a kellen diva it was something they saw at trader joe's and we're talking about a fruit a plant or what
0: I went to Trader Joe's. I stopped there very commonly. So I figured I'd go check it out. I did some uh, in person research on this. It's a Calancoa. So this oh, they just
1: be... couldn't spell it. They spelled it with a C instead of a K. And it they... a,
0: it's a marketing thing, they call oh. it you know, like it's a diva, which I'm not sure that's a name you want to put on something you're trying to sell. Isn't a diva fussy? I mean, aren't divas? Oh, yes. Yes, uh, divas I, are, yeah. 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 Well, anyway, <laughs> Calendiva being sold at Trader Joe's. I'm always very entertained by what I see being sold in the florist slash houseplant departments of different grocery stores. Trader Joe's always has basil in the window, always has lavender plants in the window. They're not houseplants, folks. Just please get over it. But this is Calendiva trademark. It's a uh, new name they're putting on Calancoa Blasfeldiana. And, you know, that's, oh,
1: that's an old one.
0: Yeah, it's been around forever. And they figured out years ago how to get Calincoa Blasfeldiana to bloom on a, the same kind of cycle that they use for, say, poinsettias and chrysanthemums. They control the day length and they also control when they start that process. And you buy this plant. It's a little succulent with extremely brightly colored flowers. I mean, hot orange, hot pink. These are some of my mother's favorite for just sticking out in the garden down there in San Diego they will bloom for you for as much as two or three months. So in Mm -hmm. terms of indoor flower that blooms and gives you lots of reward for your few bucks, they definitely are in that category. Getting them to bloom again that way is practically impossible. They will bloom again maybe at some point next year. It'll be a more open flower cluster. There won't be as much of them. So they're one of those things that most people buy as a short term, although two to three months is pretty darn good. And it's a succulent. You know, succulents are very popular right now. So water it like a succulent, that is to say, as little as every week or two weeks, you know, let the soil go distinctly dry between waterings. If you want to put it outside, if you're listening in the Bay Area or Southern California, that's absolutely fine. Outside here in the winter, it will freeze. So uh, zone 10, USDA zone 10, or you or sunset zones, let's say 15 to 24, you're fine with it outside, you can just stick it out with other succulents, and it'll surprise you with the bloom in the future. Here, enjoy it for the bloom, perhaps throw it out when you're done with it, or just keep it as an interesting perennial that might pop out of bloom now and then in the future but just a marketing thing sticking diva on there i'm not sure that i would have done that but that's what california <laughs> is you've been listening to the davis garden show with don shore
1: and lois richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in davis california